With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blackjack sale now on at Curry's PC World. Make your home the heart of the entertainment this Christmas. We've got massive savings on our large screen TVs across Sony and JVC. And for better angles and razor sharp details, check out our Samsung QLED and LG OLED ranges. Get in store or online at curries.ie. Hello everyone and welcome to another one of our uh, Rugby Life interviews. And I'm pleased to have with me Rugby writer James Stafford. James uh, was the creator of the what well, still is the creator of the website, the East Terrace. He also got he's also got a book out at the moment called An Illustrated History of Welsh Rugby. He's also a member of the Blocked by James Haskell Club, which is why we like him round here. So um I think that's my proudest achievement as well. <laughs> so many people achieve it now, though. It used to be quite an exclusive thing, but it's, it well, seems to be a lot more regular now. Yeah, and I'll I just to explain that I was I think it must have happened when I was working at, on the Telegraph for the World Cup, doing a lot of their live blogging and World Cup stuff. And I think Brian Moore or someone had a dispute with him about a selfie stick that he'd gone around in the World Cup. Yeah, I remember opening. that. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think I even asked him. I just sort of replied something on it on the thread and it was about I don't might have been about a year or so but I went on Twitter one day and I just realized I was blocked by him so yeah it was quite yeah. amusing <laughs> I think it was about to, that was 2015 I think I was about five years ahead of you uh yeah <laughs> so um so we'll chat about that we just we've just done that but we'll chat about the book and the website and everything else and lots more I'm I'm sure I was looking at your website the East Terrace James and, and mm-hmm. on the about section it says um that the website serves up content served with an unbalanced blend of adoration, cynicism, awe, frustration, and enthusiasm. How yeah. much does that kind of sum up your view of the game, of this game of ours? It's it's funny, because uh, one of the things I liked about your podcast when I first heard it was Josh Gardner felt a little bit like a more extreme version of me. Um, because <laughs> well, he I is Welsh, a, of course. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I had um, I have a group of Australian friends we we have a WhatsApp group talking rugby all the time and they're always mocking me for my cynicism. But I'm, I just try and explain to them. Um, they grew up at a similar age to me. They had, they've had two World Cup wins, multiple appearances, beating New Zealand. I grew up, my, my second game in the flesh was watching us lose at home to Romania. I saw us lose at home to Canada. I've seen us lose at home to Samoa in World Cups. I've seen us concede 90 points. I, I grew up, 
My first season as a Cardiff season ticket holder was the worst season since the Second World War. My hometown, Barry, uh, is not a rugby town. And I played my school, used to get beaten pillar to post. And I'm just trying to say, like, you don't understand. Like, it's impossible to remain. If that's your childhood, you can't be uh, too optimistic and positive. So, yeah, I think it's an accurate reflection of uh, my view. <laughs> so you're, um, I think you're a similar age to me. Are you in your 40s now? 41 or 42. Yeah, you're a bit younger than me, but similar age. Yeah. But a bit like... Um, you're kind of scarred by your formative experiences of sport. Like, I can never believe England are good at cricket because yeah. I experienced England cricket in the 90s. Yeah. And and you never lose that kind of institutionalised... It's not even a memory. It's like a, it's it's an imprinted emotion that it's, can never really leave you. It's, I'll give you two two examples of that. One of them, when I was a kid and we were losing by regularly by 50, 60 points, and this is in the four-point try era as well, remember? Mm. Yeah, this is, you know, it's even worse if you think. It's like losing by 70, 80. You know, I got up in the morning to listen on the radio at 6 a.m., us losing 77 points to New South Wales. You know, it, that scars you. And I remember... Um, when I used to play in the garden as a 10-year-old, like kicking a ball against a wall and, you know, you're pretending you're playing for Wales, sometimes I just imagine that uh, I was helping Wales to heroic failure because I couldn't, even as a kid in the garden, <laughs> I couldn't even quite imagine. I was like, oh, I, I could get mad of the match in a heroic failure. That would be great. You know, and that's kind even of... Even a fantasy of Wales winning was somehow too much of a reach. Yeah. And then the, the classic example, again, it was with my Australian friend over his house watching Wales against South Africa. We'd never won in South Africa and still haven't. And it was the game... I want to say 2000, I don't know, I can't remember, but the one when Liam Williams gave away the penalty try in the last play of the game, almost, mm. uh, to blow it. But we were about 14 points up at one time, and my Aussie friend was like, you can't still expect us to lose. And I'm like, no, we're going to lose. And he, and eventually I was like, okay, I am being a bit cynical. Yeah, we've got this, haven't we? And he's like, yeah, you've got it. And of course, you know, 10 minutes later, we've lost. And I turned around to him and said, this is why I'm like I am, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so talking about the why, you, you talked a little bit there about being from, from Barry. So yeah. you, you, you grew up in Barry. You're quite, um, we'll get on to this, but you've, you've lived in, in Dublin and Prague and numerous places and, and so on and so yeah. forth. But you're from Barry. Okay. So, so, you know, I always ask the question, where did your rugby life and how did your rugby life begin? Yeah, so born in Cardiff, raised in Barry. Uh, my family... Uh, Barry Plastics, which was an old works team, it's now called Sully Sports. It's actually in Sully, which is next to Barry, but mm -hmm. it was from the old Barry Plastics work team. Um, my grandparents, uh, grandfathers were life members, committee members, physios. Uh, my dad has been, I think he got there in 77, I want to say, but he's been captain, treasurer, president, you know, everything you can be. Uh, my uncles have played, my cousins have played. So my earliest memories were being taken over Barry Plastics. And it's, a, it's one of the most beautiful places to play rugby in Wales. It's on, right on the coast. There's no shelter from the sea. So it's both the most as beautiful as it gets and as cold as it gets because uh, the wind just comes in off the sea. Um, and one of my earliest memories is being on the sideline when a more freezing cold, just I was only like far four. I just wanted to go home. It was sheet rain coming in from the sea and a more came off the side of the pitch and fell on me and crushed me. <laughs> so that's my kind of first memory. But it's an amazing ground because games never get called off there. You literally have times where every game in South Wales was off apart from our one. But then if you the wind could be so strong, uh, you just couldn't, literally couldn't kick the ball. I, I played a game at Fly Off once where I only kicked it, I think, three or four times because you, if you drop the ball to your foot, the ball would move so much you wouldn't hit the ball properly. Uh, it's a quite extreme place to play, but that was my memory. But my first rugby was with Barry Rugby Club because our club at the time didn't have a mini section. And even as a kid, you always felt a bit dirty going over to Barry to play mini rugby because they were like the, the big rivals. But yeah, Barry Plastics was my uh, like, um, life's rugby. 
I never played at Barry Plastics. I did play at Barry. I played. I played in the second season. So I played Barry Seconds quite a few times. And okay. Their pi- yeah. Their pitch was a bit like you described. It's up yeah. on a kind of uh, promontory yeah. overlooking the the sea and and slightly sloping. You got to oh. like every, you got to every rook going one way and really struggle getting to a rook going the other I, way because it was it, you needed like crampons on. You know. It's funny you say that. I can see the Barry Rugby Club actually from where I'm sat now, but I. I went for a walk there. I was back visiting because I live in Prague now, but I was back visiting in November and I took my little kid up there for a walk and I'd forgotten how hilly it was. Um, and I remembered because I played there with Barry and I, might, I used to play for my county as a kid and we trained there. And, oh my God, I'd forgotten how exhausting the training and playing could be because it is just a massive hill. I played, like, uh, <laughs> I, I pl- we played Barry. I played for Cardiff Quinns and we played uh-huh. Barry. This, I've told this before, but the, the Saturday after 9-11 uh-huh. and everyone had to face West and do a minute silence. And the ref had just checked everyone's studs and he said, right, we're facing West and do a minute silence. And then, and then there was a five-minute conversation then going, which way is West? <laughs> and everyone kind of stood around. And in the end, I think, I'm, I'm not sure what, in the end, everyone got a bit embarrassed and just said, all right, just, just look this way and we'll do the minute silence now. Oh, that's what that's probably my biggest memory of Barry Rugby Club. Yeah, it's, it's funny as well because I grew up in that kind of, the, I said the wind and the rain could be horrendous over over Barry Plastics, and um, you know there were times where teams would come down, and it was a bit like the Packers in American football. Some teams would just have been defeated before they played because it was just so cold and windy. You know, you didn't want to be there. But I remember when I first played rugby in the Czech Republic, I was at preseason training with this Czech club, and um, it started to rain, and everybody started running, and I thought it was like a fitness drill, like. And, <laughs> We all ran and we ran under the stand and I thought, oh, great, we're going to be going up and down the steps of the stand. And then everyone just sat down and I'm like, what's going on? They're like, oh, it's a lot of, a lot of rain. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know. So they don't play rugby the rain in Prague. It's, it's a bit more this is like what we the, learned. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a bit extreme, but yeah, it was a bizarre, uh, different approach, yeah. Well, yeah, uh, Penarth was the same. I played a game at mm. Penarth once where my entire front was dry and my back was absolutely soaking wet for an entire half. Yeah, I, I had a game when I was a kid. I was playing in Cowbridge, but it was a gale force wind and I was sick. I didn't realise how sick I was, but I had a bit of flu, like, probably looking back, and I it was so cold. We went out training and you would go out to warm up in your shorts and shirt. You didn't even have the tracksuit tops and stuff. And I got so ill during the warm up that I was playing scrum off the first ruck of the game. The floor was like concrete from the frozen. It shouldn't have been played. And I remember the first ruck of the game, the ball came to my feet and I just looked at it. I, I literally couldn't move because, um, and they took me off, and I was I think I was sick for like two weeks. But yeah, it was um, yeah, lots of memories of lots of very cold games growing up. But you know, character building. So you're playing at Barry Plastics and for your school. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you played for your county, and you mentioned playing at Fly Off there. So was that was ah uh, you a good, I, good player? Was that your position? Always your position? So, no, I was a back rower. So. I played for, we had the Vale of Glamorgan schools, which I played for under 11s and under 15s, but I played like a year early both times. But I was in mini rugby. I played every position there was. I was always a back rower in adult rugby, but I had, I wanted to be a full back or fly half. And I always worked, I could pass off both hands and I never had any pace. I always, like people always joke, I had the pace of a corner flag, but I could always kick a ball and I was proud of I'll put my catching against anyone you know on my hands but <laughs> it didn't matter because I just had no pace so when I played a bit of senior rugby as a 17 year old 16 year old because I was a bit younger and full of energy I could play 10 or 15 but once I got a bit older I mean just had no pace so I was a back rower but in my heart I was a, a full back or, or number 10 yeah we like Michael Owen yeah yeah <laughs> not but much pace bit, good hands 
good hands and um yeah a bit, a bit more a bit, and i enjoyed i enjoyed the forward stuff and our club let's just say our club has a a bit of a reputation for uh being a bit of a tough club and i mean some of the stories playing club rugby as i'm sure you know playing club rugby in wales uh, i had a real shock when i played in london and dublin and czech republic at how different the culture of... how polite it was oh i just i just was I remember the first time I played in Dublin, I couldn't believe in the first 15 minutes that no one had hit me, stamped on me or, you know, cheap shot at me. I was just waiting for, when's it coming? When's it coming? And then I realised, oh, it isn't coming. You know, no one's going to hit me from behind nine times out of 10. So it was a bit of a... When I was at at Quinn's, we we had Fairwater in our league, which if you don't, Uh those who don't know Cardiff, Fairwater's a a, a fairly robust part of Cardiff. And they'd been kicked out of the WIU leagues previously because of their behaviour. But they've been let back in, but had to go up from the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah. So obviously they were actually quite a really good and tough team. So Fairwater away when I was playing was well, it was awful. It was like it was like going to war. Yeah. Well, I my dad will be happy with me saying this. Our club might have occasionally disappeared from fixtures for a while, um, <laughs> but never our fault. But I remember uh, the kayak. I don't even know the kayaks team is another. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in from uh, Grangetown. And, yeah. 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 Rough club and our club, as I said, as its rep. And I remember the. It was like a. Uh, Stories from my uncles and my dad of kayak BP games were like you know, the stuff of legend. Just for people who don't know, kayak is an anagram of Cardiff International Athletic Club. Yeah. And <laughs> I finally got to play there once. I was living in Dublin, but I came home to play a game. And um, I'm not saying this for like effect, but in the first, you get there, the dressing rooms have got bars on the window, that kind of place, isn't it? And then yeah. you, in the first, I think it was about 12 minutes, I got punched, hit from behind, kicked in both legs and high tackled and stood on. In literally like the, the first twelve minutes, um, I, and I had a, my first and only ever double dead leg. I tackled the number eight. He was a great player. Didn't need to do it. Just loved hitting people. But he didn't need to because he was so much, so much more athletic. But I tackled him, and it was a normal tackle. It wasn't even like I got a good hit on him. And as I released him, he brought both his legs up and kicked me in both my thighs. And I had a dead leg, two dead legs for like two <laughs> weeks. But it was done for fun because they were killing us. We weren't even in the game, you know. But they just wanted to beat us up you know uh yeah by the time i was playing in my 20s the kayaks were like a shadow of the former self really they were really yeah. struggling for players i mean grangetown's always been a because it, those who don't know again cardiff it's a kind of the dock riverside area in south cardiff and it's always struggled as a it's not a rugby place mm. and the kayaks used to always and the kayaks was you know if you want to use the term an integrated team i suppose well yeah. before that was a thing anywhere else yeah. And it was a shame to see him kind of dipping away, really. But they was they were always a good team when you played them. Yeah, and it's the same. Like a lot of obviously people have different things to do in the social time. But you know, at BP we used to put three club three teams out, no problem. You know, when I was a kid, and even when I started playing at sixteen, I think I, my debut was for the thirds. And um, and speaking of rough Cardiff games, it, and it's funny now. I, I say funny now. It's a different approach to concussion to what we used to have. But I was my debut for the first team is a really bizarre story. I was due to play for the thirds at home. And our first team was away to Lam Um Again, another interesting place to play. Yeah. And actually, when I played as a kid in school, I was a goalkeeper and I had rugby boots on, like the high ankle tops. <laughs> and the local kids were stoning me between plays because they were like, the goalkeeper's got rugby boots on. And they were like chucking stones at me. <laughs> but anyway, I was meant to be playing for the third team at home. And our third team kit at the time was blue and the first team kit was green. I'm in the dressing rooms getting dressed to play for the third team. And someone ran in and was like, oh, you're needed in the first team. There's been a, an injury on the wing. You know, we need someone. So I, I get in this car. We drive to Lam Romney, uh, tipping down with rain. I didn't touch the ball in the first half. I made one tackle, not involved. Second half, 
somebody finally throws me a ball. Um, and again, Lionel Romney is bars on the window dressing room. There was a Ford Mondeo on the sideline with a guy with a pit bull. You know, it was a proper uh, local encounter. But I'm on the, I get kicked in the head. Someone throws a ball behind me. I heroically dive on it, <laughs> pull it in. And I just get, to this day, the biggest hit. I, someone kicked me in the back of the head. Everything went black. And I knew it was bad. So I just lay there waiting for the physio. And nobody came. The ruck had moved on and nobody had come. So I stand up and I look around I'm completely out of it and our fullbacks be knocked out in a high tackle right which everyone had seen but because mine was in a ruck no one had seen it so he gets the treatment and I my memory is fuzzy so I carry on playing and apparently about 10 minutes later I wandered over to the sideline during play to ask what position I was playing in because I was obviously concussed but then my memory I looked down and I had a green shirt on and my last memory in my brain I had a different color shirt on in a different clubhouse and I've never been so freaked out in my life because in my mind, that was 10 minutes ago. And suddenly I'm in a different town and I didn't wow. know what was going on. And I go off the field. And again, the, you know, the difference to concussion then. After the game, I'm in the dressing room um, about getting undressed. And all the lads are like, hey, it's only half time, James. It's only half time. <laughs> and I start getting dressed again to go back out. And uh, I know the fullback went out drinking and it was all like a big laugh. But uh, yeah, it, it was example of how much attitudes of concussion have changed but that was one of the most surreal experience i've ever had playing rugby there are those who fear change those who welcome change and those who drive change at nissan we've always believed in driving change now the all-new nissan qashqai is here with the style and tech you want and the power you need it's the future-proof family car so are you ready for change the all-new Nissan Qashqai, electrified with mild hybrid power. Book a test drive today at nissan.ie. Nissan, innovation that excites. As more sectors across Ireland are reopening, the COVID-19 pandemic unemployment payment is changing. If you're currently receiving this payment, the amount you receive will change from the 16th of November. To find out more about how these changes will affect you, visit gov.ie forward slash PUP changes. A Government of Ireland initiative brought to you by the Department of Social Protection. So, did you, you, you mentioned you played for the county, where obviously you, you know, you did, you did that a year early and stuff. Was it, and you'd have been coming through in, a, in the, the, the semi pro paid times? Was it something you were ever good enough to do or considered no, doing? No, I, I mean, I obviously wanted to. I think it, the structure was a bit looser back then in terms of there wasn't really the pathway, I guess, but I always wanted to play at a high level. And I think. I, I just never had the pace. And then what actually happened to me when I got to 17, I broke my leg in a preseason game playing for St. Joe's. It was one of those annoying things where a mate asked me to play at the last minute for his team. I rushed across, you know, rushed across from Barry to Cardiff to get there. Literally had the best 60 minutes of my life, a couple of tries, and then had a really, really bad leg break. Um, and it was typical rugby attitude. The guy, I'd had a run in with this guy all through the game and I, charged at him and he it was he wasn't a foul but he, i just broke my leg on impact and in my brain my my brain was like don't show your hurt and i stood up i instantly clapped because my leg was kind of very leg was broken, broken. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they would put me in the dressing room afterwards and they're like oh, are you okay going home on the bus i'm like no i think i think i, I think i need to <laughs> oh there's none more welsh league than that is there oh it's brilliant but i it cost me it was a really bad break and it cost me a year and then in that year i kind of got a bit 
sick of rugby in the sense that I'd been playing it like for my school, for my county, for my club, training, watching Cardiff as a season of And I was kind of enjoyed my year off and I'd really got into music and started playing guitar and I got into a band and I was kind of like, I'm just going to take a break for a bit. And then the band became what I did instead of the rugby for a bit. Um, and I, so I kind of drifted out for a bit. And then I had a horrific <laughs> knee injury in a charity football tournament. Um, which also has quite a funny story behind it. And that kind of, I lost a few years then as well. So I didn't really play again until I got to Dublin. Um, and they actually said after my knee injury, like you won't play again. Um, and I stupidly believed them, um, but it wasn't quite true. So um, you mentioned you're from a you know working class background in, in, in Barry and you mentioned you ended up in, in, in Dublin. You don't have a, I don't mean to do down working class yeah. people from working class towns, but not many of them end up going to uni in different countries and traveling like that. So what, what was it made you want to do that? Yeah, well, my parents like my parents never went to uni, but they were really supportive. And all my sisters went to uni, mm. uh, Swansea and Derby. And I just wanted to go to uni because my sisters had done it. And I'd seen like how it opened up their world. And I got in just before fee paying as well. So it wasn't, um, you know, I didn't have to pay to go. But yeah, my parents are really supportive. Um, and I went to university. I had an Erasmus exchange in Prague, which is, a, you know, Erasmus... I'll fight to the death for that program. And the reason I'm, you know, married and have Czech kids now is because of Erasmus, you know, it really opened up my world. But um, yeah, af after university, again, I'd really got into the music and a couple of the guys in the band wanted to go to Dublin because it was a good music scene. And I just got back from uni and enjoyed playing music. And I just, it wasn't that I wanted to live in Dublin. It was like, my friends are going there. I want to keep playing in a band. I'll follow them. You know, it was a quite a random um, yeah. experience. And then, as things happen, the band split. We broke up after about a year, year and a half, but I just got a job at the Czech embassy over there and I'd made some really good friends. And then I made some friends from the rugby. And the next thing I know, it's been like eight years. You know, it was all very unplanned. Um, but then I got the taste for living abroad as well. And my, my wife is Czech and eventually via London, we ended up in Prague. But it was all very like unplanned, really, I guess. So what, why Prague? Did you have? Do you always have a love of the Czech Republic or the former Eastern <laughs> Bloc or something like that, or just it was just a place so, to go? Or? Uh, this is so basically, I wasn't the world's best student, and I went to a lecture one day. I'd missed a lot of them that month, and I went there, and this lecturer turned up and said, uh, "We're taking applications for the Erasmus exchange." Which uni were you in? I was at in? Plymouth. I was right. at Plymouth, and the lecturer came in one day and said, "Oh." we're doing an exchange program with Prague as we do every year. If you're interested, come and apply. And I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. I, I, and the only thing I knew about the Czech Republic was I knew something about beer. And that was because there was an old Carlin Black Label advert, I think, that talked about Czechoslovakian yeast in their beer or something. So that was that reference. And then my favorite celebrity in the world, ever heard to go with a super supermodel was mm -hmm. from there and that was the <laughs> and she was on my bedroom wall that was the you thought extent. you might bump into us yeah, that was exactly right so that was the extent of my of my knowledge and then i forgot to apply um <laughs> and about a month later i was walking back from hmv in town i think i just bought some cds and there i was oh my god i forgot to apply and i walked into the offices on the off chance and by pure pure coincidence someone had pulled out that morning and there was a spot and on, on such narrow things in sliding doors eh? yeah all that. completely completely and i loved it i got there i knew nothing about it as i said uh i i hadn't i and actually i delayed going all my friends went six of us went and five went on the saturday and i went on the sunday because it was wales france and at that point like i hadn't missed i used to go to every cardiff welsh game i hadn't missed a five or six nations game in like since i was a kid so i went the next day 
and I was so unprepared. I didn't start packing until like four in the morning after a terrible Wales-France game. We lost 36-3. And when I got to Prague Airport in the evening, pre-mobile phone, the person that was meant to meet me hadn't turned up. I had to spend the first night sleeping at the airport on a bench. And then in the morning, I realized I didn't know, not only I not only didn't know what dormitory I was at, I didn't even know what university I was at. <laughs> and I had to get the rough guide out. I bought the rough guide to Czech Republic. I found there was a university called Charles. I got a payphone, put some coins in and found someone who spoke English and said, oh, and this is a stupid question, but are you expecting a James Stafford at your foreign department? And they're like, nope, never heard of you. And I'm like, do you know any other universities in the city? And I was literally calling different institutions to find out where I was meant to be. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it, it was a very bad start, but yeah, it was fantastic. You could have ended up on like the Prague, Prague Brick Lane Technical <laughs> College or something, couldn't you? Without uh, I tell you what, at that point, I would have even accepted it yeah, after a night in the airport. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Oh, wow. So, um, so when you, you obviously do all this, you, got this, you go to Dublin, you get a job yeah. at the Czech... Embassy, embassy. Because, of, because of all that. You're, you're still playing rugby then? So I, I'd stopped playing because of this knee, stupid knee injury. Um, I'd had playing football really bad when I did everything like the PCL, AC, uh, the ACL, <laughs> the medial. Um, and it was the first minute of an all-day tournament. And then all it was was somebody just fell on me as they were turning around. It was the most innocuous thing <laughs> ever. And what was really funny is I had two operations and they said, yeah, you're not going to play again, you know. And what was really funny was the tournament was to raise money for a local hospital and i think we had three knee injuries that day so the bill to the nhs was probably <laughs> like 10 times uh, and the doctor would say treating me was like yeah these charity tournaments they they cost us more than they ever, <laughs> ever raised and the other the other thing on that is quite a funny story was it was the most pain i'd ever felt because the whole knee went and people said like from the sideline they could hear the popping and the slopping and everything when it went and i and I, again they didn't want to take call an ambulance and after about 45 minutes I don't think I'd eaten breakfast either it was a hot day I said guys I'm about to pass out I need to go to hospital so somebody finds a mobile phone they call the ambulance and of course it's not an emergency so they said like it's going to be an hour so I'm there and I'm just dying and then after about 40 minutes somebody the most beautiful words I'd ever heard in my life at that point is like oh here comes the ambulance and then they looked and they went Oh no! Sorry, that's an ice cream van. <laughs> and, a real and, life Morecambe and Wise. Story. Yeah, and as they said it, like the music came in, ding, ding, ding you know. Uh, <laughs> so that was a funny. Thing. But anyway, I got to Dublin. And I, I I just started jogging again. I'd only just started running, and I was running through Herbert Park, and I saw a bunch of guys playing touch, and they saw I had a, I think I had an East Terrace rugby. No, I'd not at that point. I had a rugby shirt on anyway, and they asked me to join in, and I started sidestepping, and it was a bit gingerly, but I realised after a few weeks of playing touch with these guys that actually my knees holding up better than they said it would and then these guys played for old belvedere and they invited me to train and over time i got a bit more confident and then ended up joining old belvedere which was a world away from barry plastics um, i can imagine yeah south dublin was, that is it yeah dublin four like it's it's yeah, balls yeah. it's proper and it, it, what was really interesting again I, I was pretty unaware of how middle class the game was in dublin because when i used to meet I remember the taxi driver when he found out it was a rugby player it was like he literally said to me oh you play rugby do you Posh school was it? And I was like, "What do you mean?" Like, um, and the, but the funny thing is, the first time I played because old Belvedere, for those who don't know it, it used to be a, a, a old people who went to Belvedere school. So until the seventies, it was literally an old boys' club for the. It went open only in the seventies, but Ballsbridge is like right next to Lansdowne Road, RDS. You know, very leafy green area, and all the embassies are. But in my first game for be, for Belvedere, we were away from home, and I was walking to the toilets just before we went out, and I could hear the away teams team talk. 
and there was some guy in there. I won't do the accent, but he's going, these bloody posh bastards, these do that. And I was thinking, because there were lots of games, and oh, I wonder who they're playing today. Um, and then it turned out it was like my team. <laughs> and I just realized <laughs> that I'd become, you know, the, 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 the hated middle class team I was playing for. So it was kind of really funny and a very different experience. So when do you start thinking when when is when does writing become a thing that you you've already, you've already mentioned you're into a band and you're in music yeah when does writing become a thing for you I'd always been love writing and love writing stories in schools trying to impress the girls or you used to write these funny stories and I'd always like written for the university magazine and when I was a kid I used to write like rugby reports to myself and that and I wanted to do something different and the internet was like early days of the internet I guess really but I realized it was an opportunity I could write on rugby uh, online. And I came up with, I was really big into The Onion at the time, you know, the satirical yes, news yeah, yeah, site. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I also hated rugby humour. Most rugby humour at the time was that very much barmaids, bristols and hookers and, you know, these horrendously old, horrible, not funny things at all. And I real, I was really jealous of football because football has so much great writing with this humorous or satirical. Well, the or, football fanzine culture was amazing. Yeah. And I found myself reading football fanzines, even though I wasn't, particularly interested in football. Um, and I decided that I was going to try and do the uh, onion for rugby, if you like. And that the internet made it an easy thing to do. And I, I launched it. Um, and my cousin helped me build the site. And it was a huge success. And what I mean by huge success, not necessarily huge numbers, but are a comp- constantly loyal following. Mm. Um, and without being out at the time, there wasn't that much humorous rugby websites. And it was very different at the time. This no one had really done that. 2004. 2004, That I is think, pretty yeah. early. I mean, I know that I yeah. I started Blood and Mud in 2007, the pod, yeah. and the, the, the blog. And and that was one of that was still one of the first. Yeah. And I, I, I was aware of you at the time. In fact, I might have been inspired a bit by seeing you. But I didn't realize you'd been there around for that long. I thought you were around about the same time, but it was three years earlier. Yeah, and it was really... and it, well, and what was really funny, because no one, I always wrote the pieces, even if they were quite, sometimes they could be semi-serious, as in like the, we were trying to make like satire, trying to make a serious point. But often we often did these very nonsensical things. And what was amazing is, I mean, first of all, there's always someone on the internet who believes what you're writing is true. Like you just can't see the humour. <laughs> but also no one had written like that on rugby. So one of our launch pieces was um, that Matt Damon had missed training at Northampton because he was addicted to Quincy reruns in the afternoon, you know. And it was clearly... a a piss take and there were the Northampton forum at the time the rugby fans forum went crazy there were people going how dare he you know and I, I wasn't trying I wasn't trying well, to you fool know you're anyone. onto something then though don't you yeah and I wasn't trying to fool anyone it was just you know I was just writing it straight as if it was a real news report and and people really liked it and and from that then um and there's been some really funny instances of the WIU and people getting upset about the articles but it got syndicated by a few places the Irish Independent scrum.com and then from that I was working at the embassy in Dublin at the time, which is right next to Lansdowne Road in the RDS. And I started doing press conference coverage for papers back in Wales when the Welsh team played. And and it basically led to me getting actual proper writing gigs. Um, but that wasn't really the intention, but obviously it was a really good way into it. Um, yeah, so that's how it started. I think it's funny because you mentioned that point around, I'm not surprised that happened in the mid-2000s because one of the, and I think there's something that hangs on rugby even now, uh, that everybody involved in it is entirely too credulous. Yeah. You know, they're just too willing to to, to, to believe what's said to them oh. or or particularly don't like it if you have a pop at people who are telling you things like rugby unions or people yeah. who are meant to be positions in the game. It's a, it's a very... I can't work out if it's because it's a historically quite amateur deferential sport yeah. or what. It's 
It's well, funny, you know, it's almost like you're not allowed to take the piss out of it in some well, ways. The, the funny thing is, if you what was really interesting was I used to read, you know, get your Google alerts when people are talking about the website. So I used to read when people would share the stories on the on the fan forums you'd yeah. read about it and what was amazing was i was everyone assumed i was english or i was it depended on what i'd written i was english <laughs> yes. i was irish i was scottish and and then people would say like because i but most of my stories were making fun of wales or welsh rugby and therefore a load of people assumed i was english and i'm actually like i'm welsh and most of the stories are having a go at wales I, you know, i'm not being biased here i'm just making fun of whatever's make, worth making fun of you know but people bring their own prejudices to it and just assume you know you're anti-Welsh and but the funniest we've had a few funny examples of people believing it I mean there was a when Rocky Balboa came out the Rocky Six we did a piece saying that Bill Beaumont had come out of training based on the inspiration come back to training because he was inspired by it and some <laughs> and some expat newspaper in like Tenerife ran a really concerned editorial about like how he, he shouldn't be doing it and but, but, but the actual best one ever which is kind of quite famous is um scrum.com started syndicating they'd get the they'd start syndicating and they ran the one we did when the whales had the yellow canary shirt the, the yeah. really bright we did a piece again written straight but that the because um, there was some press release talking about how it was like saint david's gold all this nonsense and we did a piece saying it was a tribute to the yellow canaries that died in the coal mines <laughs> and that the yellow was actually made from canary feathers that they you know and the wiu i got a call from the editor of scrum.com in a bit of a panic saying the wiu I want us to clarify that this isn't true and that this isn't right. <laughs> and I'm like, look, this is covered in satires. This is even better. We'll actually put a disclaimer saying we've actually been at, you know, how you've actually been asked to take this down by the WU. But oh, no, sorry, we'll actually clarify that canary feathers are not used in no the No canaries were harmed you know? in the lighting of this piece. Yeah. And then we did a George North one and George North tweeted about it. But we did one when George North first came on the scene or really exploded in 2011, 12. We did a piece saying that he'd been carried into a press conference by, you know, virgins and was sat on a throne <laughs> and he was talking in the third person. Again, I mean, you can't take that seriously. And the WRU uh, got in touch to say, like, you know, you need to clarify that this isn't real. And... <laughs> And George North did a tweet saying, like, you know, just to clarify, the article's a spoof and all the lads are taking the mick out of me. But I used to love it because we just put the disclaimer there because it just made it funnier that the WIU had got in touch <laughs> about it. We wish to clarify that George North is not carried around on a sedan chair. Yeah, exactly. yeah, so it was good. And like I say, no one had really done it. So I think it was kind of being in there first kind of really helped, really helped as well. So, I mean, I can remember... We got a lot, you know, I got a loyal following on, on the Blood and Mud, but a bit like we have with the podcast, really. And thank yeah. you all for you all listening to this. But it's everyone had an idea of being able to somehow make some money out of this, didn't they, at yeah. some point? And, and it proved very difficult, apart from a little yeah. bit of pin money, you know. Um, did, did, is that what you found in yeah, the 2000s? It was, it was interesting because, again, I wasn't expecting to make money out of it. So in the end, I saw it as like a way of writing to get other gigs, which is what happened. But yeah. we ended up, we got. Um, like we were getting syndicated on scrum.com and with we were actually at one point we just one piece a month on scrum.com we were actually the best viewing pages they got apparently each month because wow. they would really promote it so i was getting money from like um because they were basically paying me as if i was writing for them when i did a piece so i made some like it was a nice top-up but what happened and i'll talk about it now i've relaunched these terrace now it's, it's not as satirical now it's much more history based and because after a while after about I don't know, seven or eight years of doing the satire stuff, I felt like I kind of, it was getting really tough to think of new ways to do it. Um, and I was worried I was just start, I was keeping it going on a satire front to keep 
the payment coming in from the syndication. Mm. And after a while, I said to Scrum.com, you know, I've, I've, um, they were great. And I just said, oh, look, I think I've finished now because I, I, it's, I'm running out of ideas or I, I'm kind of don't want to feel like I'm doing it for the sake of doing it. And then it became a much more part-time thing. And by that time then, I was doing a lot more other, you know, say proper rugby writing for want of a better way of saying it, um, stuff for match programs or eventually when I moved to London, doing stuff with the Telegraph. And, and I kind of put these terrace on kind of, hiatus for a long time but in the last year and all the stuff i've been doing on my rugby book i've got all this research and stuff and i'm now kind of using it as a place just to do some editorials or talk about history in a different way or or talk about eventually more stuff about czech rugby because i'm obviously over there so i've kind of reinvented it and i'm really enjoying it again because i think the satire i might still do the odd satire a bit but i kind of felt i'd done all i really could on that or Mm. right, right around its course as well you mentioned then about history. So you've got this, your latest book that's out is an illustrated history of, of Welsh rugby. And is is mm-hmm. is this it, because this is what you're doing now? You're kind of more rugby historian type stuff. Yeah. Without being an academic, you know what I mean? But just yeah. To... Yeah. So I, I was one of those kids when I first, my first full season of rugby as a memory, I vaguely remember the 87, my dad watching the 87 World Cup, but my first season was the 88 Five Nations. And one of the first things I did, my mum went out, I asked, I went out and bought me history books on the game and, you know, and I loved it. And I, I couldn't believe that Wales were playing rugby in the 1870s, 1880s, when like Billy the Kid was running around. You know, when we- I was loving to Westerns and it just blew my mind that rugby was that old. And I got into all these books, but I often found it really difficult. Although I was quite an advanced reader, I a lot of the old books are very scholarly or very dry. or And I, I realised as I've got older, a lot of them weren't very accessible. Um, and I decided a few years ago, I had a couple of, I had, some, I had a kid and I was thinking, how am I going to teach him about Welsh rugby? Cause he's going to live in the Czech Republic. And I just had this idea. I'd done a comic book before that. And I, I worked with a lot of illustrators and that no one had really done a book that was illustrated with art rather than photographs. And I realized most history photograph books and rugby have the same photos because there weren't many photos around for a hundred years. So it's always the same photos. And I suddenly realized there was a kind of a gap for a book that was a really interesting factual read had a bit of social context, which is something I've, I've tried to put in there, but also you could pick it up as a 12 year old and who knew nothing about rugby, or hopefully you could pick it up as a 55 year old who knows about rugby, but doesn't know all these stories. And I suddenly thought there's a market here for a, a book like this and a series. Cause I'm going to be doing an England one and hopefully an NFL one. And I had a really positive response from publishers and I realized, it's, and the feedback, I've had some really nice feedback at it from people of all levels of rugby knowledge. And I think hopefully there's a gap in the market and the illustrations have kind of given it that something different, hopefully a bit of fun and a bit of, you can do something a bit more poignant with an image or do something a bit more silly. But I think it's a really nice way of telling the story of sport. Yeah, I mean, I've got it. I, I'm looking at it right now as we're talking and it is, it is one noticeably different from other histories and it. it has got these comic book style um mm. renderings throughout it which is which is really good it's also um i don't mean to sound make this to sound terrible but it'd be mm-hmm. a very good bathroom book yeah yeah in yeah. that because it is sectioned up into short bits of histories here and there you don't have to go yeah. front to back in it you can dip exactly. in and out of it it's um it's it's a coffee table toilet book you know and, and it's, and it's <laughs> i'll put that on the, on the back of the yeah blood and mud.com podcast it's a toilet <laughs> book yeah uh, but no no yeah, see yeah. and i mean that the nicest possible no way, i know what you mean yeah it, i i don't tend to I, I do read a lot of historical stuff but for me i don't tend to read books that much anymore which is a different thing mm-hmm. to say i tend to read i love dipping in out of things like wikipedia or history sites and actually this feels a little bit like that yeah. it's something you can dip in and out of 
and have a good read of. And there's a brilliant section in the middle, which is the only kind of, you know, the, you know when you go into a, a bookshop, you look at the photos and then leave. Yeah. Um, it, it's got that bit. The bit in the middle is all the uh, history of the Welsh rugby kit. Oh, my God, which that is was fascinating. hard work. I can imagine. But it, well, what, tell, tell us why it was such hard work. Well, what's really... So I, I, I've always been obsessed with kits, and I, I always kind of just had... I don't buy them, but I've just always liked how I think a team should look good, and I'd always been fascinated by it. And I love the old Victorian shirts, the embroidery, and I just kind of always had a thing about it. And I realised there was no database of all the Welsh kits, and there was actually a book that came out about... 10, 12 years ago, and this is where I saw the artist, they'd done a similar thing, but it wasn't all the jerseys. It was up to about 2009, and they had lots of jerseys missing. But I thought, wow, I want to finish this database. So we got in touch with the artist, and Cake Bread, and decided to do it. But what you don't realise, rugby compared to a lot of sports, there's a lot of games that there are no photos or videos of online. And you actually, it's not as easy as you think to go and research um, what shirts were worn at what mm. time. So, and I had this thing I knew in my brain, there was a photo of Wales in 1975 where they had an Umbro logo on the shirt. And it took me ages. And I eventually realized it was one game against Australia in 1975. Well, for some reason, we had an Umbro logo on the shirt. Um, and I just realized, right, I'm going to, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it properly. So I'm going to literally identify all these things. But it was so difficult. And then you found out things like, sometimes the replica shirts were different so the green replica shirt wales had in 94 which was the time wales had that dragon logo on the sleeve they the never hoops, the sleeve hoops yeah the hoops and they had the dragon logo on the shirt however the green version when the wiu sold it in shops it had the dragon logo in but it didn't have the dragon logo on the shirt they wore and you start finding all these inconsistencies and obviously since the 2000s they're making two three shirts every couple of seasons so it was just i was up because this book's written after I work, I was up till three o'clock in the morning for like two weeks. I'm not exaggerating about that, getting it right. And then you've got to explain to the artist, like, you know, the exact details. Or oh, this has the logo of the feathers on the left short, but the next game, the short logos, swap the logos around and all that. But I actually woke up just after we went to print. Um, I woke up, I'd had a dream that I'd missed a shirt we'd worn against South Africa in 95. And I was really stressed out and I woke up and you, when you wake up from a dream and you're still stressed out, and then I realised I dreamed the game, it never really happened. But I actually couldn't get back to sleep because my brain was so like stressed out from the <laughs> thought that I'd missed something. So yeah, it was, but hopefully, and the funny thing is I put all that time into it and 99% of people will just go, oh, that's interesting, you know, and not. I, yeah, I mean, I find it quite <laughs> fascinating, but it's a, the most fascinating thing is the first kit, the 1878-81 kit, which when they were the South Wales Football Club, which yeah. is all black with a white, big yeah. white, leak motif on it i'd wear that now it's a brilliant uh, t-shirt and this is the other thing i want to do with the book the, the politics behind why like i'm a republican i i would love us to not have the feathers you know but we do and i understand they're not going anywhere but it's really interesting when you look at it because scotland ireland and england all had plants you know thistles a rose and yeah, shamrocks yeah, never thought that and, before, yeah. and wales had the leak and apparently there's different schools of thought and i try and address it in the book why we have these ostrich feathers but some are saying that the feathers would, because it was the jingoistic time, was our way of saying like we're part of Britain and royalty and you know that kind of deference. So we're going to have the Prince of Wales feathers to show you know we're mm. part of the empire and all that. And other people say it might just be they wanted to get away from the leak because the leak was the South Wales football team just before the Welsh team. <laughs> but if you think about it, like it's um, we're the only one of those original four founders to not have a national floral symbol. 
Um, do, you, do you have a favourite shirt from this huge compilation that you've pulled together? Well, it's funny. I have two. I mean, I really love the sort of 1905 one. It's just a classic red. Just a, the embroidery on the feathers is just it's just gorgeous. The detail on the feathers and the simplicity of that. But then the other one, and the only official Welsh shirt I've ever owned in my life, is the Ecru one from two th- from 97. The random, ec- what they call Ecru, which most people call cream or, or beige. But the Ecru one with the blue and red hoops. Utterly random. No, I, my eye is. I was just looking through. My eye was drawn to that one. It is really yeah. quite nice, isn't it? The kind of cream, cream with the two hoops in it, the blue and, and the red. It hoop, must yeah. have been a Reebok thing because Liverpool that season had what they called an Ecru shirt as well. Actually, if you look back, but if you look at the photos, if you type in like Wales Tonga '97, um, the shirt looks really nice in a, on in a in real life, um, and it's completely untraditional and kind of terrible in other ways but there's something <laughs> about it so yeah my favorite's like the 1905 shirt and the bizarre ecru shirt of 97 yeah so that, that's that's the, an interesting thing is to, to look through it'd be great if you're going to do one in england one of these books in England, it'd be great to see the same thing so you can have some yeah. more sleepless night not great for yeah. you because you're gonna have to no. obviously not have any sleep for about three well, months but... well I, i've been on the england one now about five months and i haven't got to that stage but i'm a bit more stressed about it because <laughs> a lot of the welsh stuff i knew just from my obsession as a kid, it was already in my mind. Oh, I know we wore in 93, we wore that shirt. I don't have quite the same internal recall, obviously, for England shirts. So it's going to be even more horrible <laughs> doing the England shirts, actually. Because I'm just going to have to re- like really look at every picture from every game ever played. Was there some... I mean, when you were writing the book, was there something that you found out... Well, you probably a lot of things, but was there anything in particular mm. that you, you were genuinely surprised by or fascinated by? I think... the. the I mean, it's all committee stuff. The two things that I, I really find out uh, frustrated me as well was the the old committee men, especially in the early days, like there was a, a secretary called Walter Reese who was secretary for like 50 years. Um, and he was just a bastard. And he would, um, <laughs> really, you know, obviously you had the whole working class and upper class and middle class dynamic in rugby and, and Wales in particular. It was strange. But this was a man who would, for his own would turn up to the Twickenham in a Rolls Royce with a police escort, would put on an extra train carriage with food when they went to Murrayfield. And then when a working class man tried to claim his expenses, uh, he would complain and, you know, not want to give them their expenses. But then if a player from Cambridge or Oxford for Wales wanted to give them expenses, he not only would give them expenses, but would give them very generous expenses. And you're thinking this is, you know, if anything, those people probably need it less too. But these dinosaurs, and when you read the old books by like the famous writer JBG Thomas, they talk about him like in a quirky way. Oh, what a character he was. And you're thinking, no, he's like, he was no. a complete bastard, you know? Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> and then a similar thing, if you look back, obviously Welsh people are grown, are raised to want to be England and England's the big one. But if you look at the early days, the, especially the Scottish rugby union, but the Scottish and Irish rugby union were very snobby to Wales and were always trying to get us banned or, you know, quite openly said in their post-match functions, you know, um, you shouldn't be picking working class men. And the RFU were much more supportive for various different reasons, but supportive of the Welsh game. And if you look at it from a pure, like, how the game started and how we were treated and looked down upon, you know, Scottish and Irish games should have actually a bit more spice than the English ones. It's, it's really interesting when you look back at those kind of things and uh, see how people viewed things. It kind of, it kind of speaks... To, well, you know, the, the Wales Island thing for the past 20, 20 years really speaks... Well, speaks mm. to the incorrectness of the Celtic fraternity that people yeah. kind of pointlessly yeah. say, and uh, which is always a bit patronising anyway, I think. Yeah. Well, actually, no, Ireland and Wales really aren't big fans of each other. Yeah. In rugby, and, I can't speak in anything else, but in rugby, well, it's, it's a big well, problem. I, 
I played there and obviously I got like I was the only Welsh guy on the team. So I get lots of, you know, all good natured stick. But yeah, you know, it's not the um, cozy relationship that for some reasons is assumed to be as well. Um, and I also think I, I it's like yesterday, you know, with the England Wales game. I, I do feel for England sometimes. I mean, they can't win if they if they don't say they're confident, then they're being called dishonest. And then if they say they're confident, they're arrogant. But, you know, then I know like Irish journalists can talk about how be completely dismissive of a team. And it's not arrogant, you know, or vice, or the same with Wales. Like, I mean, there's a Jonathan Davis program I saw last. I, I've heard about it, but I saw a bit of his chat show the other day, and they're throwing rugby balls at faces of English rugby players on the chat show, right? Hmm. Like they've got it's horrific. And can you imagine the reaction in Wales if some chat show in England was throwing rugby balls at Dan Bigger's face? This is the absolute meltdown that would occur. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I think you know, I, I I thought Farrell all that stuff with the post match interview. I thought him and Eddie Jones handled the post match interview pretty well, um, and they were damned if they did or damned if they didn't. But I think yeah. they were great in the post match interview. Yeah? So this is after the England uh, the Wales defeated England Six Nations. If you listen to this a bit later, but um, the I thought you know they were. Yeah. I mean Farrell was clearly fuming, but they didn't dwell on the ref thing. Yeah. You know, it's not uh, for us to say refs yeah. make decisions, um, and, and and Jones in particular was very clearly saying we brought it back to twenty four all and we lost it from there. That's yeah. what I. That's my, what my uh, problem it, is. It was really frustrating, and, and I and I actually you know without going too much of the game, but I actually thought both Wales are very lucky both those first tries, and I it's a real bugbear of mine in rugby, and I ever since the Roland O'Gara and try against South Africa where a similar thing happened. But to me, rugby needs to solve this problem of. If you're going to tell your team, to, your captain, to talk to the team, I think they should have some kind of signal. The referee makes a signal, the captain talks to the team, and then he puts the signal on to say, like, you know, you've got five seconds now or whatever to get ready. But if you're talk, telling people to go and talk to each other, you've got to give them the time to reorganise to me. And it's a problem that doesn't need to be there. I think I think you're right in that you could solve it so there is none of this, but also mm. on the other side of it, why were they 20 metres away under the post? They, they'd made an assumption, an, an erroneous yeah. assumption there, and they yeah. got and they suffered because of that, really. I, I do, th- and I think, they, I was reading, the, looking at it again this morning, they also brought the water carriers on, so it's, I'm less sympathetic this morning than I was yesterday, but I just think as a general problem, it's a problem that oh, it, always happens. It, they should just have maybe, a signal yeah, to solve it. I don't disagree that you should maybe try and solve that, but although I do think it would be a bit like the Italy-Fox uh, defence thing, that somehow yeah. because England have made enough noise about it that it suddenly needs a law review, that one wouldn't uh, look great. I, but yeah. I, actually, I actually think, I was talking about that last night, I actually think they will fix it now. Because mm. so, yeah. it's too high profile again, yeah. My yeah. friend is, who I did the football, he, he's got a passing interest in rugby, but he's quite cynical about it. And he made a, he did make a good point. He texted me this morning. What did he say? He said, he said um, there's no future for a sport in which the referee is the star match after match after match. Yeah. And and I think if you have a rule that prevents that, I suppose that that, that will be a help. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's the book, The Illustrated History of Welsh Rugby. It's As I said, it's 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 a great little dip in and out of history. So if you like, I mean, we love rugby history on this podcast, as you know, we've done an entire series <laughs> on it. Um, your point about the RFU being nice to Wales. Tony Tony Collins, who does our history, history yeah, podcast, great. has that brilliant phrase where he says, Wales pretended not to not to pay people and England pretended to believe them. Yeah, and completely. That, that, and in a way, that was England being nice because they didn't believe, England said they didn't believe people in their own union. And that's yeah. why the Scottish Rugby Union weren't happy because they thought England were becoming soft on amateurism yeah. and they thought they were yeah. the last vanguard of the kind of right oh, way of doing the, things you know scottish rugby union in history oh my god and uh and also you know even after the second world war uh, when they you know they had these wartime games where the rugby league people would be serving in an army in britain 
Uh, even then, the Scottish Rugby Union didn't want these people could come over and die for Britain. But if you were a rugby league player, you couldn't possibly take the field with a, a Scottish Union player. You know. Hey, let's not forget, rugby league wasn't allowed in the armed forces till the nineteen nineties. So that's how much of an institutional problem there was. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So. Have a pick up of the book. It's really worth having a look at. I've I've l- looked through it and enjoyed it. And um, we'll put a link on when we send out the, the information on this. Um, just a point about your other book. Tell people before we finish about how um, Samuel L- Samuel L. Jackson now seems to love you and know who you are. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a long story, but the very short version is I, I wrote a web comic about Prague uh, back in 2011. It eventually got picked up by a Czech publisher um, after a news article and published in they translated it and published in Czech and at the time I was a friend of mine has a charity called one for the boys which is a male cancer awareness charity and Samuel Jackson is the like the chairman or president of this charity and when I was in London I got to work with this charity and very luckily got to work with Sam quite a bit and, and kind of get to know him and he's a oh, comic right, book wow. and he's a comic book fan so we used to sometimes talk comics and uh when the book was coming out, I printed out the English version because it was although it was translated into Czech. I obviously had everything in English and he very kindly read it and very kindly did a very nice tweet about it. And the, the funny thing was we used that tweet obviously on the book cover because it was Samuel Jackson, but the tweet was completely untranslatable into Czech because he called the book Dopas, which is a good thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you, if you literally translate Dopas into Czech, it doesn't sound like a good thing. So uh, my public, I said to my publishers, the good news is we've got a quote to use for the cover. The bad news is I have no idea how you're going to translate it. Um, so I think in the end we went with like, we just had to use a totally different phrase, like a heavenly good or something. You know, we had to just go with the essence of what it meant rather yes. than what it went. So yeah. So Find that was, the correct idiom. Yeah, so that was quite nice. So yeah, but I have he, unfortunately he hasn't tweeted on this one yet. But Mike Rea has of Cardiff, so that's good. That's about the same level to me. Alyssa <laughs> <Mike Rea. laughs> James, that's been really nice. Good luck with the book and good Thank luck with the. Much. And I'm very much looking forward to the follow up. And the NFL one sounds like it's fascinating as well. So yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait. So yeah, and thank you very much for having me on. Then. No problem at all. We'll speak to you all soon. And thanks to you all for listening. Bye bye. Thanks, Lee. Bye. As more sectors across Ireland are reopening, the COVID-19 pandemic unemployment payment is changing. If you're currently receiving this payment, the amount you receive will change from the 16th of November. To find out more about how these changes will affect you, visit gov.ie forward slash PUP changes. A Government of Ireland initiative brought to you by the Department of Social Protection. Sports Social Podcast Network. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.